0: F-B-C-D-U-M-A-S-T-X dot com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. So, sometimes when it comes to these conversations of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, uh, if we were to be use some more crass terms about it, we would say God's sovereignty And what we might call free will, though free will is a very complicated uh, phrase, uh, I think that's what we most mean when we talk about our responsibility. We can, if we lean too far into a particular view of God's sovereignty, and and if we lean too far into a particular theology of predestination uh, that goes beyond what the Bible teaches, we might find ourselves in what is called fatalism, or uh, old Greek philosophical system called stoicism. And if you can just boil that down to the swing song, K sara, sara, what will be will be, that is, that's fatalism. And so, God is sovereign, God is in control, He already knows what's going to happen, He's already made what's going to happen to happen, and so, I make no difference, you make no difference, so why pray, why obey, why do anything, why tell people about Jesus, why bother with any of it, if what's going to happen is just what's going to happen, okay, and, and how, may, how many times have, have any of you wrestled with that, honestly? Whether or not it's in the context of sovereignty and predestination, just in terms of God being in control, and I'm praying, but what am I praying for? God, do your will, but I'm also asking for this. It can, it can get overwhelming and confusing, but we have to remember that the Bible never teaches that sort of blind fatalism. As, as many scriptures as we've read about God being in control, And as many scriptures have we read about God being sovereign over the weather, over people, over hearts, over actions, the Bible is also replete with commands to do, to not do, to obey, to pray, even as you saw there in Acts and also in Nehemiah. Um, The old illustration uh, that people sometimes use against some views of God's sovereignty is a man who falls down a flight of stairs, And after he gets up at the bottom of the stairs, he says, well, I'm glad that one's over with. Get it? So what was going to happen is what was going to happen. He was going to fall down the stairs, and so he fell down the stairs, and at the end of it, he's like, well, glad that's done and over with. That is a caricature of God's sovereignty and predestination, and I think your food's here. (laughs) She put it right in the middle of everybody, just for you. (laughs) Uh, But a real trust in God's absolute sovereignty should never lead us to do nothing. Double negative on purpose. It should never lead us to do nothing. We don't just, things don't just happen to us and we say, well, I'm glad that's over. What's next, God? You know, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not participating here. It's just kind of happening to me like the man falling down the stairs. No, a knowledge of God's sovereignty and his rule and his authority gives us confidence not to do nothing, but to do something, to obey him when he tells us to obey, to pray and to participate in this divine will, doing what we can do and trusting God to do what we can't do. But let's get to the root of some of these questions we sometimes ask. If God is sovereign, if God is in control, why pray? Now, rhetorically, you know, don't answer out loud because there's gonna, I think there might be some different opinions here. Can we change God's mind? Just answer in your heart. I don't want to see heads nodding. Can we change God's mind? Can we change... God's will it gets confusing admittedly let me say on a blanket surface level okay with with obviously a lot of caveats we would have to dig into in terms of the the scriptures quoted there that are real and uh, just as much scripture as any of the others that we've read um, I think the definitive answer I think brother Matt here has to say the definitive answer to these questions is no if God has decreed the end from the beginning and everything in between and even the crucifixion of Jesus was according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge then and we can get into all sorts of discussions about the decreed will versus the revealed will versus the moral will that gets hairy but it's, it's, it's interesting if you ever want to get into it um, not today the, the answer has to be I think no If we can change God's mind, if we can change God's will, if we can change God's plan, then there's something in God's sovereignty that is limited by our actions. There is a difference in the Bible in God's decreed will, God's revealed will, and God's moral will. Well, let's just say it this way. According to the scriptures we've read in Acts 2 and Acts 4, and the crucifixion of Jesus, was that God's plan from before the foundation of the world that his son Jesus would die for sinners? Yeah, Revelation even talks about it as if it was he was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. And so if that was his plan and that was his will, then we also have to wrestle with the question of the fall in Genesis 3. And we have to ask, well, if it was God's will for Jesus to die before there was creation, then what do we do with the fall? If that was his will, was this a blip? Or was this part of that revealed will? So when God says, don't eat the tree, Don't eat the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. Or when God in the law says don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't do these things. Uh, That is his revealed moral will. What God desires, if we could say it that way. Uh, As we quoted from from Timothy, uh, God desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. There's a will of desire, a will of morality that God says don't do this or do this. This is what I desire. But within the fall of humanity, and the need of redemption, and God's plan in redemption, there's also a decreed will in which God decrees certain things should happen, everything that should happen. And where the balance is, I, I, mean, I can't tell you. It's, it's, it's a mystery. Deuteronomy 2929. The secret things belong to the Lord. But what we do know is we can look at one action, like the crucifixion of Jesus, and we can say, on one hand, does God want people to be arrogant and prideful and blas- uh, blaspheme his name and crucify Jesus on the cross? In terms of his moral revealed will, we'd have to say no, don't, don't uh, covet, don't uh, murder, all those things being violated in the crucifixion of Jesus. But at the same time, it was God's decreed will and his revealed will that Jesus be crucified for sinners. And so those reconcile, as Spurgeon said, somewhere in eternity, although we might not be able to make them reconcile now, we do have to struggle with those questions of God's will. All of that being said, when when, when we dig down, who's in that search committee? Is anybody here on the search committee with me? Maria's not here tonight. That's apparently my catchphrase, all of that being said. Um, All of that being said, when we talk about God's decreed eternal will and plan, nothing can change that. Nothing can stand in the way of that. Nothing can alter those plans or alter his mind in a way as if to say God was going to do one thing, but then says, oh, no, I'll do another because something new happened or something caught him off guard or something caught him by surprise. And here's the thing. As much as we want to say yes to some of these because it makes sense in our minds of some things, if we say yes to any of these questions right here, I would just suggest that it becomes very hard to trust God because if attitudes, motives, sin, people, events, whatever it is, can alter his plan or his will or his mind, then how can we be confident that anything he says he will do, he can actually do because it would seem as if something is dependent upon me or upon you or upon something happening we got to move on we can come back to that at a later time Uh, let's look at a few of these things Philippians chapter 4 look at Philippians chapter 4 speaking of prayer and our attitude in prayer Talked about those two attitudes of prayer, anxiety or trust, and Paul hits on that here, Philippians chapter four. Would someone read Philippians chapter four, verse six? All right. Now, and you already looked at Acts 4 and the prayers of the believers as they were praying after Peter and John were released. We see some some answers here to this question. Why pray? I think. Paul gives us one: don't be anxious. There's the trust God aspect. Do not be anxious. And this word anxiety carries with it this idea of concerns and worry as if they were burdens. And Paul says, don't worry. Don't carry those concerns around. You know, come to Jesus and find rest. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And we have, see a similar promise here. Don't bear those burdens on your own. Because causes often, you know... When we, when we experience worry and anxiety and stress in a sinful way, okay? It becomes sinful when it becomes inward. When, when we turn those things in on ourselves and our prayers, instead of being directed to God with those motives of building a relationship and thanksgiving and gratitude and love and worship and thanksgiving, as he says here, instead of those being the driving motives, the driving motives of, of prayers of anxiety and stress and worry tend to all come back here. As, as Javon said, just make it stop, make this go away, make, make me comfortable, make this easier, make me happy. Those are the kind of prayers that come from anxiety versus prayers that come from trust. And Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. And so there's our, our bottom line doctrinal claim. God is sovereign. You can trust him in all things. So be anxious in nothing. But it doesn't stop there, does it? There's a do something. Number one, Pray. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, to universal norms, anxious at nothing, pray for everything, pray. And when it comes to the passage in Acts, as they prayed, and as they sought God's control and his sovereignty in that situation, what did they do? Well, they obeyed. Jesus had told them to go and make disciples. Jesus told them to go and preach the gospel. And although they had hit this wall of persecution there in Acts 3 and 4, there was no way, you know, Peter and John were told, hey, you can go on healing and you can go on doing your stuff. Just don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Remember what they said? You know, whether it's right for us to obey men or God, you decide. As for us, we can't help but testify to what we've seen and heard. We can't help but preach in the name of Jesus. That's the reason we're here, Peter and John say. So we're going to obey him. We're going to trust him in this situation of what, in their minds, they might have been killed, stoned. Had God not operated, even in the religious leaders' hearts, to not do that. But in their minds, maybe in that moment they could have. And they said, you know what, we trust God with this situation. But trusting God didn't mean for Paul, for Peter and John, for anybody. Just, you know, well, whatever. No, they prayed to know God's will. And then they obeyed God's will, what they knew they were called to do. Prayer, far from telling us to do nothing, prayer assumes God's sovereignty. I don't, it, it it really doesn't matter which side of, of the debate on God's sovereignty people land on. It doesn't it doesn't matter at all because we all tend to pray the same way. Don't we? It doesn't matter if you consider yourself an Arminian, a free will, a Calvinist predestination, whatever camp you, you tend to side with. When we pray, we all kind of tend to pray as if we really believe in God's sovereignty. Because we pray, hopefully, as if we know God can do something about what we're praying about, right? And No matter what you believe about free will and salvation, how do you pray for someone to be saved? except God open their heart, God change their heart, God open their eyes, God provide open doors, God send me, send someone, it's all directed at God and his sovereignty to do something about the situation, trusting that he can and trusting that he will, and that applies not just to salvation but everything in life, and so prayer, no matter which side of any of that you fall on, it tends to assume God's absolute sovereignty over all things. And and far from keeping us from prayer, as we see in Philippians, as we see in Acts, and all through the Nehemiah, God made these promises. God is in control, but we're still going to pray and seek his face and seek his guidance and seek his protection, seek his power and his will. This trust in God's sovereignty does not discourage prayer. It encourages it. One of the questions people ask about sovereignty is, well, if you believe in God's absolute sovereignty and control over all things, why do you pray? And R.C. Sproul used to say, and I look right back at them and say, if you don't believe in God's sovereignty and God's absolute control over all things, why do you pray? God can't do anything about what you're saying anyway unless you let him. No, we believe in God's sovereignty. We confess it. It presumes it. And it encourages prayer. It also encourages obedience. That's what we see on behalf of Paul, Nehemiah and the Israelites, Peter and John in the early church. Everywhere we turn, there's a statement of God's promises and what he said he's going to do. And then there's prayer to seek his counsel further, and then there's obedience to follow up with that. Let's look at a really interesting example from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 27 and this is one of those times where you know we're reading a narrative we're reading something that's historical and a story in nature it's not presenting itself as really a theological work here in Acts 27 but in between the lines we see this theology we see this idea of God's sovereignty and our responsibility Um, let me read a quote from the book first I want to not miss that on prayer. Uh, Page 102 in your book, if you want to read with me, at the very top of page 102. The uh, Puritan preacher Thomas Lye said, As prayer without faith is but a beating of the air, as prayer without faith is but a beating of the air, so trust without prayer is but presumptuous bravado. He that promises to give and bids and bids us trust his promises also commands us to pray and expects obedience to his commands. He will give, but not without our asking. Right? You want to talk about providence and God's sovereignty, you can't get any deeper than the Puritans. right? And here's a Puritan preacher saying, Prayer without faith is just beating at the air and trust, even if we claim to trust God and his sovereignty, but without prayer, all it is is presumptuous show. It's just a show. God promises to give, but he also commands us to ask and to seek and to knock. So that brings us to this passage in Acts as we move into this idea of prudence and how to be wise. We trust God, we still pray. We trust God, we must also act wisely. Uh, Look at what happens with Paul here in Acts 27. Uh, Can someone read those verses for us? Verses 22 through 26, and then verse 31. All right, so this is, again, an interesting story. Paul, on on his journey and his shipwreck, he winds up on Malta, but even here in, in the shipwreck, we see this Understanding in this doctrine of God's sovereignty and also man's responsibility come into view. Uh, Trust in God's absolute control does not negate prayer. It empowers it. And in the same way, trust in God's sovereignty and power does not negate our need to act wisely and biblically and prudently. This generally, the author says, is avoiding harm to ourselves and others or trying to bring about what we believe is the right course of action. We're actually doing something. And if you look here at this story, in God's sovereignty and bringing the storm, he sends an angel to tell Paul, not only am I going to save your life, because you're going to go stand before Caesar, but I'm going to save all the people on the boat with you. Not one life will be lost, right? There's a promise. But what does Paul say in verse 31? He tells the centurion and the soldiers... Unless these men stay in the ship, you can't be saved. There's no jumping overboard. There's no uh, abandoned ship here. God's going to do this. You need to trust him. No one's going to be lost or die. But you've got to stay on the ship if you want to be saved. Now, Did God make a promise or did he not? Of course he did. But there's also this action of prudence and wisdom that Paul says, okay, now listen, that doesn't just mean you do what you want. There's a promise here. God makes a certain promise, but there's also prudence. Unless you stay in the ship, you can't be saved. So how do we kind of boil this down? Paul had a certain promise from God. He had a certain promise from God. And he tells the people, I trust that promise. Take heart, men, in verse 25. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But then there was a warning to obey. These are not contradictory statements. They they flow together throughout the scripture. There's a promise given, a promise understood and trusted, and then there's also a warning given that needs to be obeyed. Paul had a direct revelation of what we would call God's definite decreed will very much like a prophecy or a vision, Paul was told this is exactly what's going to happen and no lives will be lost. And even then, knowing God's decreed will, as in God spoke it directly to him through the angel, even then, that did not negate Paul's need or those men's need to act wisely, to act prudently, and to obey the instructions they were given. You see that? It didn't negate that. Now, how much more so do you and I, every single day, unless we know God's revealed will according to Scripture about a particular situation, God doesn't speak to us in that same way that he did Paul and say, listen, this is what's going to happen. This is exactly how it's going to go down. This is who's going to die. This is who's going to live. God doesn't speak to us in that way. I think I can say that universally to believers today. God doesn't do that. He did it for Paul. He did it for the prophets. He doesn't do that. He speaks to us through his word. Not every aspect of God's decreed revealed will is revealed to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29. There are secret things that belong to the Lord. So if Paul knew for sure God's decreed revealed will in that moment, and he still acted with wisdom and prudence, as did the men, how much more so do we? not knowing God's definite, decreed will from moment to moment, need to obey Him. In wisdom, how much more so do we need to act with prudence, trying to find the best course of action, trying to use the best means possible that God has given us to do the best right thing? If I can quote Frozen 2 on a Wednesday night Bible study, to do the next right thing, right? Take the next right step, whatever the song was. That's what God has called us to do. Prudence, wisdom, wisdom, acting biblically uh, there's, I got a lot of quotes tonight uh, on page 104 if you want to read along with me page 104 at the bottom, near the bottom Nehemiah says Nehemiah trusted in the sovereignty of God he said quote from verse 20 there in Nehemiah 4 our God will fight for us but he also used all available means, believing that God and his sovereignty would bless those means. You see that picture? God will fight for us. God will build this wall. But they still took up their trowels and they still took up their swords. They still went to build and they still went to fight. Even though Nehemiah trusted in the sovereignty of God to build and to fight for them. Lastly tonight, let's talk about the builder and the builders. And this comes from Psalm 127. Turn there. I think it's the last one for the night. Last scripture reference. Psalm 127, verse 1. Would someone read that verse for us? Psalm 127, 1. All right. Now, we, this is a fairly familiar psalm, isn't it? Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. But, but here, hidden beneath this familiar language is this idea. God's sovereignty, our responsibility. We see very clearly that God is the real builder. Unless Yahweh builds the house, we see that Yahweh, God, is the real watcher. He's the true watchman. Unless Yahweh watches. But I want you to notice in both cases... This does not mean that God replaces either one. God does not replace the human builder. God does not replace the human watchman. Even though the underlying reality of both is God is the real watchman and God is the real builder. God doesn't replace either. Who ultimately regardless of our our maybe differing views, who ultimately is responsible and worthy of praise, I'll say it that way, for the salvation of someone who's lost? God. What has he commanded us to do? To go and tell them the gospel, right? And and so we see that unless God does it, it's not going to be done. But that doesn't mean we just say, well, God's doing it. No, he says go and preach. Go build. Go be the watchman. Go sound the alarm and leave the work up to God. God doesn't replace the human agency there, He works through the human agency. Uh, Another quote here from page 107 at the top. Page 107 at the top. um, Second paragraph. We must depend. We must depend upon God. To do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that's, a, that's a popular Christian maxim, right? We trust God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. There's a second part to that, though. We must, to the same degree, depend on him to enable us to do what we must do for ourselves. Okay, To, to, to simply say that we can't do some things ourselves it is not really a statement of God's sovereignty. It's a somewhat a statement of God's sovereignty, but it's both. We trust God to do what we can't, and we also trust him to enable us to do what we must. And so there's God's sovereignty, and there's our trusting him for our responsibility and what we're called to do. Um, author gives the illustration of a farmer, and I... I always hesitate to use agricultural illustrations where we are because I don't know what I'm talking about, and you all, uh, most of you do. But (laughs) I think I'm generally right on this. We understand that the Lord sends the rain. The Lord grows the crop. It's the Lord who gives life. the Lord who takes away life. Right? It's the Lord who's in charge of those things. God's control over the weather from last week. It is God who is in charge, God who is sovereign. But God still made farmers. And God still gives us these means by which we can cultivate, and grow, and fertilize, and use pesticides, and all the things that God has given us to further that work. You know, no farmer that I know of—I'd like to—I don't know if this work work out very well. No farmer that I know of, a believer, goes out and says, "Well, God's in control of the weather, and God's going to grow the plant, or He's not going to grow the plant. So even though I'm a farmer, I'm going to—I'm going to do nothing." That wouldn't work out very well at all. No, even a Christian believing farmer, understanding God's control and God's sovereignty, knows God has also called them to do this certain task and to facilitate and to come alongside of God in this work. You see, so although God is the one who gives life and God is the one who raises up and raises and brings down, it is not for us to sit back and do nothing but to obey and to use what he's given us to do to come alongside of him in his good work, whether it's farming or whatever it is. Going back to the illustration of the man that fell down the stairs, right? He fell down the stairs and says, I'm glad that's over with. You know, it it was going to happen anyway, so I'm glad it happened. Uh, The author says he also would have done well to look at the sign on the side that says, please use the handrail, right? God is (laughs) sovereign, but we also act with prudence and wisdom. And if he had just grabbed a hold of the handrail and was careful with his steps, maybe that would not have happened. That's a silly illustration just to kind of say these last couple of things. God does not need us. I love in the story of Esther, and the author brings this up too, when Esther is hesitant at first to go in before the king uninvited, right? For good reason, because you could die that way. And she has an important task and Mordecai tells her this is an important task. And Mordecai, it's, it's hard to read without smirking a little bit because you hear Mordecai, this old man who has so much wisdom and he's trying his best to help and he's trying to be encouraging to Esther. But hes- Esther seems a little bit hesitant to go in and do this. And, and Mordecai, I mean, you can go read the story. I wish I, I could have the reference for you. I'll give it to you later. Uh, Mordecai basically says to her, look, whether you do this or someone else does, it's going to happen, so you might as well go do it. Right? God doesn't need you. But he says to Esther, maybe for such a time as this, God has raised you up. God chooses to use us. God does not need your prayers to accomplish his purposes. God does not need your evangelism to save a lost soul. But in his sovereignty... And in his rule and authority, God has decreed to use our prayers to accomplish his purposes. God has decreed to use evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel to save the lost. All his work, amen, all his power. But he's called us to obey and to cooperate in that work by his power. So what's left for us with God's sovereignty but to do, to pray, and to obey. Do what God has revealed for us to do. Even though Moses says in Deuteronomy 29:29, the secret things belong to the Lord. But those things which are revealed to us are for us and for our children and our grandchildren. Those are the things we know we're supposed to do, so do them. And among those are to pray... To seek God's will in all things. To give him thanks in all things. To bring our needs before him in all things. And then also to obey the things that we know we're supposed to be doing. Um, Page 110, we'll close with this quote from the book. Page 110, very last paragraph of this chapter. As we conclude the author says these studies on God's sovereignty and now turn our attention attention to his wisdom and love we need to realize once again that there is no conflict in the bible between his sovereignty and our responsibility both concepts are taught with equal force and with never an attempt to quote reconcile them let us hold equally to both doing our duty as it is revealed to us in the scriptures and trusting God to sovereignly work out his purpose in us and through us. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your rule and your sovereignty and your faithfulness. God, we look back over our lives and I'm sure all of us can recount the many times when you've proven yourselves, proven yourself in our lives to be faithful, to be trustworthy to be sovereign, to be in control. God, even in those times where in the moment we did not have an answer, we did not understand, God, maybe now looking back, we can look back and see your hand moving and working even in those seemingly impossible, terrible situations. God, I ask tonight that if there's anyone in a situation like that here, that you would help them, that you would help all of us to once again recommit ourselves to trusting in you And that by trusting in you, you would cause us to pray. That that would fuel a passion to speak to you, to hear you speak to us. And that would encourage us to obey. And God, as we come into a deeper understanding of your sovereignty and your control and your power, let that not be an obstacle to prayer for us. Let it not distract us from obeying and doing and being what you called us to be. But let it fuel those things as we seek your face, as we seek your will, and as we seek what you've called us to do in this world and to use the means you've given us to do it. God, in all things, you are good, you are sovereign, you are powerful, you're holy. Help us tonight to trust you all the more every day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. That's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.